The Beatles are a pretty nice band, and we've got a lot to say. The Beatles are a pretty nice band, talk about them day after day. But we also love the outfit a lot, so are these songs better than your love? The Beatles are a pretty nice band, someday we'll judge if they're fine, oh yeah, someday we'll judge if they're fine. Revolution number nine. Number nine. Number nine. Number nine. Oh boy, alright. I'll say this. If you know what you're gonna get to, yep. it's not nearly as bad and unlistenable as the haters say it is. Uh, the big criticism, even from within the band, is this isn't a Beatles song. Well, I'd argue it is, because it came from John, and we'll later find George's mind. The point of the White Album is to try anything and everything. And 1968 was a really crazy, off-putting year, and completely deserved a pop band releasing an eight-plus-minute eight sound collage that's nonsensical, dark, and, let's be honest, funny. You think John could go eight minutes without humor? Please. Please. Uh, Please. Holy, it's totally a Beatles song. I don't quite get that argument because, you know, you, you know, there's been solo tracks like on this album, uh, Julia. Who else is on that? It's just John. It's a Beatles that's a Beatles song. You know, anyway. Uh but yeah, it's pretty monumental, mon- monumental, monumental. Monumental. For uh, and and I don't mean this in a derogatory way pop band because that's what they are they're a pop group to put something as wild and challenging like this on an album and you know i've said before that it's easy to be weird for weirdness's sake Mm -hmm. and it's harder to be weird and make it accessible Mm -hmm. so with that in mind how does this song fit into that for me it's on its own island you can't you can't put it in either of those boxes or camps uh i think you have to have a lot of confidence in your art just to put pure nonsense and noise like this on your album. And obviously like they weren't the first to do something like this. Other artists were doing very challenging work like this before John wanted it to be on a Beatles album, but Mm -hmm. like you could, but bringing this to the masses and saying here, like, wow, I find it to be in that context, a very fascinating listen. And also, well, I don't know if, I don't know if you, you talked about this. We talk about this, but I think it's interesting how, like, every one of these songs, they so far they always do the mono mix first. There mm-hmm. was no mono mix for this song. They like did it in stereo and then just did a reduction of that to mono, which was the f- maybe the only time they did that. I don't know. I think because it was really uh, 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 like a in the um, not spontaneous, but you know there was something that they could only do once. I think in the to to make absolutely. The mix. It's it's literally like making the studio an instrument. Yes. Anyway, number nine. Dividing number nine. audiences since late 1968, John Lennon's Collage, Revolution 9 was an exercise in music concrete, influenced heavily by Yoko Ono and the avant-garde art world. The recording emerged for Revolution 1, the final six minutes, minutes of which formed a lengthy, mostly instrumental jam. Leonard took the recording and added a range of vocals, tape loops, and sound effects, creating Revolution 9, the longest track released during the Beatles' career. John said, The slow version of Revolution on the album went on and on and on, and I took the fade-out part, which is what they sometimes do with disco records now, and just layered all this stuff over it. 
It was a basic rhythm of the original revolution going on with some 20 loops we put on, things from the archives of EMI. And we'll get to those specific things. Although he made no direct contribution to Revolution 9, being in New York at the time, how convenient, Paul <laughs> McCartney had led work on a similar sound collage they still had released to this day, 14-minute Carnival of Light, uh, 18 months before. Well, that's what's going to come out in, a, in, in the fall, right? We don't know. <laughs> I'm sure it's not this. I but, I mean, there's no out. way it's any good. <laughs> like, it would have been released, you know? Well, yeah. Um, so, yeah, Paul pointed out in an anthology that Revolution 9 was quite similar to some stuff I'd been doing myself for fun. I didn't think that mine was suitable for release, but John always encouraged me. So that's interesting. He's kind of like, well, I mean, I didn't think it was for the Beatles, but like, John, to be fair, John did encourage him to do stuff like that. Revolution 9 featured the it also featured in the Paul is Dead myth. <laughs> and it was discovered that the number nine motif would play backwards, sounded like Turn Me On Dead Man. Sure it does. Turn me on, uh, Turn me on, Turn me on. Turn me on. I'm your dead man. I'm your dead man. A number of other elements of the recording featured in the myth, including the sound of a car crashing, followed by an explosion. He right, blew his mind out in a car. Mm-hmm. Yep. On May 30th, 1968, the Beatles recorded Revolution 1. During the first session for the White Album, the beginning of Jeff Emmerich's demise... Mentally, Take 18 became the basis for Revolution 9. The final six minutes formed an extended jam. John and Yoko then assembled a range of effects at Table of Standard Recording. Work on Revolution 9 as a separate entity began on June 6th when Lennon prepared 12 effects tapes. Some of these were of his own making. Others were taken from the Abbey Road archives. Five were marked various. The others were titled Vicar's Poems, Queen's Mess, Come Dancing Combo, Oregon Last will test Oregon last will test Neville club theater outing and applause slash TV jingle. Not all were used on revolution nine. On June 10th, Len spent three hours assembling a third of three tapes of sound effects. The following day, while Paul was in Abbey road studio two recording blackbird, Lennon was in studio three compiling more effects. The most significant day's recording was June 20th and a session beginning at 7 PM and ending on the following morning at 3:30 AM. Using Studios 1, 2, and 3, Lennon oversaw the live mix of his sound collage with numerous tape loops being played across a number of Abbey Road's tape machines. The following elements can be identified for the many that featured on the four-track master tape. George Martin sang, Jeff, put the red light on, looped with heavy echo. A choir accompanied by backwards violins. Extracts from a symphony orchestral performance edited and rearranged and played backwards. A repeated sample from the orchestral overdub for A Day in the Life. A Mellotron performed by Lennon and played backwards. Various extracts from symphony and operatic recordings. The final chord from Sebelis's Seventh Symphony. High-pitched tummy by Yoko Ono and George Harrison whispering six times the phrase, There ain't no rule for the company freaks. Most memorable, however, is the recurring number nine announcement called from examination tapes made for the Royal Academy of Music, formerly stored at Abbey Road. The phrase appears sporadically throughout the track, faded in and out as a constant thread running through an otherwise chaotic creation. Also on June 20th, Lennon, Ono, and George Harrison recorded a series of seemingly random statements. These include Ono's You Become Naked, Lennon's Industrial Output, Financial Imbalance, The Watusi Twist. 
Harrison's mention of El Dorado and Lennon's Take This Brother may it serve you well. The track used Abbey Road's Steed single tape echo and echo delay reverb system. During the live mix, the delay ran out, and at 5 minutes and 11 seconds, the sound of the tape being rewound can be heard. Mm-hmm. A stereo mix of the song was made on June 21st, after a final set of sound effects were added by Lennon and Harrison. The following day, the track was completed with an edit taking its running time down from 9 minutes and 5 seconds to 8 minutes and 12 seconds. During compilation and sequencing of the master tape for the album, The Beatles, two unrelated segments were included between the previous song, Cry Baby Cry and Revolution 9. The first was Can You Take Me Back? The second was a bit of conversation from the studio control room from an unknown session featuring Apple's office manager, Alistair Taylor, apologizing to George Martin for forgetting to bring him a bottle of red wine. Okay, this is like a little play. Do you want to be right. Alistair Taylor or George Martin? I'll be, uh, I'll be Taylor. Okay, so you go first. Okay bottle of claret for you if i'd uh, realized i'd forgotten all about it george i'm sorry well do next time will you forgive me mm, yes <laughs> cheeky bitch these two snippets were added during a 24-hour session which spanned october 16th and 17th in which the beals prepared the final running order crossfades and edits for the white album okay so this is jeff emmerich's uh version of events yes our first night back was truly memorable. George Martin had booked all three Abbey Road studios for the complicated mix of the sound pastiche known as Revolution 9. Unusually, Paul wasn't at the session. He had flown for, to the States for a few days, New York. And Ringo wasn't around either, so it was just John and a rather unenthusiastic George Harrison working on the track. Interesting, he says here, unenthusiastic George Harrison, but we'll see later if that's true. The two of them, accompanied by Yoko, would occasionally venture out into the studio to whisper a few random words into a microphone. Just as we had done when we mixed Tomorrow Never Knows, two years previously, every tape machine in the facility was required for the playback of tape loops, with every available maintenance engineer once again standing around in his white coat, holding pencils in place. The big difference was that on this night, there was a good deal of resentment among the staff, because the session was running quite late, well past midnight, and they wanted to go home. I didn't blame them. Many of them had been there since 9 in the morning. They didn't turn up in mid-afternoon like we did. Plus, the session had to be dead boring for them because they couldn't hear any sound. They were just standing in the various control rooms holding pencils while the tape went round and round. Occasionally, one of the loops would break, and they'd have to get on the phone and let us know, which, of course, annoyed John to no end. By the time of the White Album, it was not uncommon for various Beatles to sit behind a mixing board alongside me. They were no longer afraid to touch the equipment. On this night, John sat with me behind a console like a kid with a new toy. He was a composer and he knew what he wanted, so he manned the faders instead of me, although I served as an extra pair of hands doing bits of panning and looking after the overall level so things didn't get out of hand and distort. The whole thing was extremely haphazard. If he'd raise a fader and there was no sound, he'd say, Where's it gone? A curse word might escape his lips from time to time, but that was about it. He never really lost his temper that night, though you could tell from his tone of voice that he was getting irritated. Yoko, as always, was by his side, whispering in John's ear and lifting the odd fader on occasion. Every once in a while, Lennon would shoot a glance at George Martin and me to see if we approved of what he was doing. <laughs> I, that's, I think that's very funny. Huh? Am I doing it? I mean, yeah, yeah. See, I uh, can per- do it too. I can push buttons. Yeah, I'm a genius. Personally, I thought the track was interesting, but it seemed as though it was as much Yoko's as it was John's. Clearly, it wasn't Beatles music. Mm-hmm. A few days later, all four Beatles returned to the studio, and John proudly played the two tracks that he had completed while the rest were away. I could see from the dark cloud that came over Paul's face that he was totally underwhelmed with Revolution 9 when he first started, and there was an awkward silence after the track faded out. 
John looked at Paul expectantly, but Paul's only comment was, not bad, which I knew was a diplomatic way of saying he didn't like it. Ringo and George Harrison had nothing to say about the track at all. They looked distinctly embarrassed, and you could tell that neither of them wanted to get caught in the middle of this. Not bad, Lennon said derisively to Paul. You have no idea what you're talking about. In fact, this should be our next bloody single. This is the direction the Beatles should be going in from now on. Yoko, with an appalling lack of tact, managed to aggravate things third still by blurting out, I agree with John. I think it's great. Judging from the look at disdain, I was quite sure Paul was thinking, you've got to be kidding. But to his credit, he didn't rise to debate and didn't argue. He simply said, well, let's listen to the next playback. Which was Revolution 1. I heard for the grapevine that John and Paul ultimately had a huge row over Revolution 9. Paul absolutely did not want it on the album, and John was just as adamant that it would be on there. In the end, of course, he got his way. Another influence on the Lennon was his relationship with Yoko. Yolanda Yoko had recently recorded her own avant-garde album, Unfinished Music No. 1, Two Virgins. Lennon said once I heard her stuff, not just the screeching and howling, but her sort of word pieces and talking and breathing and all this strange stuff, I got a treat, so I wanted to do one. Ono attended the recording sessions and according to Lennon, helped him select which tape loops to use. In a 1992 interview for Musician Magazine, George Harrison said that it was he and Ringo Starr who selected the sounds, sourced mm-hmm. from MMI's tape library, including the number nine, number nine dialogue. Authors Chip Madrigan and Mark Easter write that the content of Harrison's lesser-known experimental piece, Dream Scene, recorded between November 1967 and February 1968 for his Wonderwall music album, suggests that Harrison had a greater influence on Revolution 9 that has been acknowledged. In his book about the Beatles' White Album, titled Revolution, David Quintek lists Lennon, Ono, and Harrison as the actual writers, despite the Lennon-McCartney composer's credit. In a 2011 documentary, George Harrison Living in the Material World, Ono says that George, John, and I made Revolution 9, and that Harrison sort of instigated it and pushed them to create the piece. I, I can pretty- see that. Mm-hmm. Like, that makes a lot of sense to me, especially, like, I can totally see, yeah, again, again I'm not, uh, none of us are in the room, but I can definitely see, like, an enthusiasm, like, some enthusiasm from George and Ringo, like, just, you know, while, uh, while everyone's working on other things, just kind of digging through EMI's tape library, like, that, to me, also sounds kind of fun, like, just pulling out stuff like, ooh, this could be interesting, and, you know, George yeah, has been very experimental in the catalog. That's right. <laughs> so it doesn't seem out of place that he would be, you know, maybe maybe not the most enthusiastic, because obviously, you know, John and Yoko are very gung-ho about this, but I could mm-hmm. see him being very encouraging and wanting to, to play. And, you know, part of it was probably like, oh, Paul's going to hate this. <laughs> oh, sure. I mean... <laughs> That absolutely had to be part of it, too. And guess what? He did. He did. Not bad. Ooh, he ate it. Ooh. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's interesting. Like, if George was not enthusiastic, if George wasn't an instigator, maybe John Yoko would have been like, ah, forget it. You know? Well, and that, again, it is Beatles music. I don't quite get the argument that it's not. It, it's like, it's on its own island from the catalog, but, you know, it came out. At this point, the whole point of the Beatles was it's an umbrella. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's an umbrella for their work. And, like, they knew that they had to be together. You know, it was a arranged marriage at this point. Mm-hmm. Like, everyone's doing their own thing. Let's get out of our contract. 
<laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, the most, it, uh, to me, uh, reading the reviews of the song at the time, NME's Alan Smith derided it as a pretentious piece of old codswallop, a piece of idiot immaturity and a blotch on their own unquestioned talent, as well as the album. Some people liked it. The Jam Band Fish performed Revolution 9 at their Halloween 1994 concert that was released in 2002 as Live Fish Volume 13. Band member John Fishman streaked across the stage after the line, If You Become Naked. (laughs) (sighs) Stupid sexy Fishman. Love Count (laughs) Zero. (laughs) All right. Nothing at all. Nothing, nothing at all. That would have been a great nine, Nothing loop. at all. Dead Flanders, huge <laughs> Beatles fan, we discovered in an episode. Oh, really? Yeah. And then, yeah. Oh, you didn't see that? Um, yeah, it's... There, he, has a, he has a whole, like, uh, basement full of Beatles memorabilia that Bard and Milhouse discovered. And, oh. then, uh, and I think Homer later asked, like, Flanders, I didn't know you were a huge Beatles fan. He's like, of course, they were bigger than Jesus. Amazing. <laughs> Uh, Josie scale, okay. So, at first I said Josie, but then I realized, well, I I felt weird giving it a Josie. And the thing is, it's because the Josie scale we said always said is this song better than your love by the outfield, and this is not a song to me; it's a sound collage. Okay. So uh, I'm going to give this an undefined. Man, you're just fucking with my math. (laughs) I know, I'm sorry. I know. <sighs> well, if it's undefined, I'm going to say that that's a Josie then cuz cuz mm. you're not you're you're not saying that it's better than your love. I'm not saying it isn't either. It, I god. All right. Well, we're going to have to figure out the math soon. I'm sorry. Um, it's okay. Well, I am going to give this a yeah. So you I think, you think this is better? Then you're loved by the outfield. Well, I think t- I think w- I think we're a little bit closer on this here. Like you and I yeah. kind of have a similar opinion. Uh, I really like the noisier parts of Sonic Youth mm-hmm. and the the noisier parts of Neil Young. Like shove like well, I saw Neil Young like literally like fist his speaker and do like just like pure noise for like 15 minutes in like sure. 2012. And like I've done the similar thing, like similar things in one of my bands, where I've just like took a radio and just ran it through distortion pedals and just wow. like beat the crap out of it. And stuff like this, you know, was very inspiring to to bands like this. Like I think this is a really important song. Yes, very important song. Yes, as like a song, it you're it it isn't really sure like. It, if you if you had if I had jukebox money and it was your love or Revolution Nine, I'd pick your love. But for the reasons I listed, I'm gonna give it a yeah. And maybe that's just a hot take. I don't know. It's it's it's. I think it's genuine too, coming from it. you. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I think like I, it's. I get why people don't like it. Like you don't have to like it. Do I skip it most of the time? Absolutely, because I don't want to listen to to eight minutes of it. But I think it's super. It's it's one of the more important things that Beatles did, mm. in my opinion. I 
I mean, I like sound collages. I've I've made them too. Uh, I made one about Matt Harvey. I it's remember that. Kit. Yes. Yes. A Harvey Day most foul because it was like a, a parodying Bob Dylan who released like a seven minute song Murder about JFK's foul. assassination in yeah. 2019 or something. <laughs> um, Which ridiculous. <laughs> this guy. Oh, you don't be cute anymore. Um, uh. it's, it's, I just feel we're talking about two separate things. I understand. You know, you know your love buddy outfield is pure pop and you know this is uh pure not yo no it's like that that's which is the point um it's its own thing so i feel uncomfortable saying yeah or josie so i i I took the easy way out and (laughs) made things complicated and said it's undefined I knew you were a day tripper. The Beatles are a pretty nice band. Talk about them day after day. But we also love the outfield a lot. So are these songs better than your love? The Beatles are a pretty nice band. Someday we'll judge if they're fine. Oh yeah, someday we'll judge if they're fine.